0: My interest was all about how do entrepreneur owner managers flourish and thrive? And I'll just give you a teensy bit of a complication, which is you pointed it out. Many times these people have spent their lives in a domain, building an organization. They love the people, they love what they do. They know they want to put the hands, the business in the hands of someone next. But after they do it, there might be a sense of loss maybe sometimes almost a sense of warning of what is the next thing. So a lot of my work in the positive psychology domain has been to ask the question, are you driven by the past or are you called to the future? Because if you're called to the future, if you have something out there in your next chapter that you're trying to get to, we can help you with that.
1: Welcome to American Dreams. My guest today is Pete Worrell. Pete, welcome to today's
0: show. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here with you.
1: So, Pete, uh, you know, you work a lot with entrepreneur, owner, managers, and you have a really unique business model. But before getting into that, I'd like to take some time uh, for the listeners for you to walk through your background. How
0: did you get to where you are today? So I grew up in... Uh... New England, uh, the uh, son of uh, entrepreneur parents. My parents had a small uh, business where they were uh, making steel fabrications of buildings and bridges. And so uh, dinner was at the dinner table. Uh, the, the, the conversation at the dinner table every night was about business. Uh, I um, thought I probably would go into that business with them. And uh, as I came out of undergraduate school when I went right to graduate school and got an MBA, as I came out of that program, I interviewed with the, with this firm, Bigelow, and um, my uh, partner to become uh, interviewed me and uh, said, "What are you going to be doing when you get out of business school?" I said, well, "I don't know. You know, maybe you work for Pepsi or Frito Lay, or maybe I'll go to work for my parents' business. Who knows? What do you do when you get an MBA?" And he said, "Why don't you think about uh, talking to us because." We have this uh, very uh, terrific consulting practice, which is exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we want to build it more to do M&A consulting, merger and acquisition type consulting, which um, private owner managers are not getting the quality of uh, advice they could get, let's say, from Wall Street. And so um, he, we had a very funny conversation, Alan, and I'll, I'll stop here. And he said to me, um, we got to talk about compensation. I said, yeah, we should. He said, uh, what's the least amount you can afford to live on per month? So I'm about a week away from graduating, getting my MBA. And I say to him, I don't think that's the right question. And he said, yeah, yeah, it might not be the right question, but just stay with me. How much can you afford to live on per month? What's the least amount? And I said, honestly, I think I have a market value. I'm a newly minted MBA. I'm talking to the computer companies. I'm talking to Frito-Lay. I think we ought to talk about what's the market value. And he said, just stay with me, stay with me. What's the least amount you can afford to live on per month? So I, this is, you have to remember, this is 1980. I said... Well, I got a apartment cost, I got a car payment, I got student loan payment, $1,200 per month is the month I could live on per month. And he said, great, we'll pay $1,200 a month and a third of whatever you close. And Alan, it was as if a bolt of lightning hit me because I went, oh, oh, so this is up to me? They said, yeah you close transactions for our clients and create great value for them. And we'll pay you a third of that. And I, you know, I'm only 23 or 24 at the time. And I say, no cap. And they say no cap. And I said, deal. And so, um, really I was unbelievably lucky where that bolt of lightning hit me that a, I found a place that has been my professional home for the past 42 years and B, that i found a conversation that let me realize, oh, oh, I have to take personal responsibility for my own economic well-being, and I have to take personal responsibility for my own psychological happiness. And if I do those two things, well, that's keeping the power uh, where it belongs, right? So that, that's really how I got to Bigelow, and that was in 1980, and I've been uh, making Bigelow my professional home ever since then. It's a great story, and,
1: and few people find... Their home, and you know, right out of school. And the fact that you're there says a lot for Bigelow. So you must have really not only taken the position, but also helped to create the, uh, the, the culture, the landscape. And so,
0: yes, I so, so I was so lucky. Um, two mentors who were the partners who ran this firm, Dick Kimball and Phil Ryan, who are still two of my close friends, were my, um, big mentors, but also big supporters. I had a, I had a view of the market, maybe which was a little different. I felt that entrepreneur owner managers were not being fairly treated by investors, that had, the playing field was uh, skewed towards the benefit of the investors and that we could become fearless advocates for entrepreneur owner managers to make certain that they were able to choose the best next partner for them that they could. And I had a very... Um, Passionate then and passionate now, uh, desire to want to make sure we were helpful to them in every way we possibly could. So, today we have a, we continue to have a scrappy boutique firm of less than 20 people who are all dedicated our lives and our careers towards helping entrepreneur owner managers only. So, we never have a private, a public company client, we never have a private equity group client. We only work for people who have skin in the game. And our view was always that we could be more and more clear about that if that's all we did and we had no potential conflicts. So today at Bigelow, uh, we're just coming up on our 80th uh, year anniversary as a firm. Um, as I said, we're a little less than two dozen people, uh, but we're widely, widely known for being the M&A firm that deals exclusively with entrepreneurs.
1: You know, the, 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 Pete, the, the uniqueness of your model is right off the bat, they gave you, uh, you basically you, you had your own skin in the game. You were taking the minimum, but in order to, uh, survive, you, you had to bring in clients. Tell me about your first deal that you closed. How'd you go about that?
0: Well, it, it was a fascinating deal and I'll make it very quick, um, I was a young man, and uh, I luckily had been building relationships with people who were other advisors to entrepreneurs, and a guy who was 20 years older than me called me one day and said, uh, he was from one of the now big four accounting firms, and he said, we have a client in Cleveland, uh, sorry, a client in, in Southern New Hampshire who wants to figure out how to grow through acquisition. Can you just go meet them? I don't know what they want to talk about, but you know all about this. You have a lot of positive energy. They're entrepreneurs. I care very much about them. And so would you go just meet with them and see if you can give them some education, which I did. It turned out they had a company in Cleveland that they had in mind to acquire. So I had no idea whether that company in Cleveland was actually available to be acquired or not. And what I did was uh, I found out who the company's attorneys were, which you could find out in those days by going to the Thomas Register because there was no internet. There were no PCs. And I went to the register and found out who their attorneys were. And I cold called their attorney and said, look, I have no reason to believe that your client, which his name is called Cleveland Mixer, which made industrial mixers, would be open to a conversation or not. But I represent a firm in the Boston area, which is very financially capable, which has identified your client's business as one we'd love to talk to. And this uh, this uh, attorney said, my gosh, you must've been in our board meeting last week. This is exactly what we wanna talk about. How would we begin this conversation? And I said, why don't we begin it with me coming to see you? So I popped out to Akron uh, like the next day or maybe the day after, and really that's how we did it. We, we did it the old fashioned way by building the relationship first <laughs> We got to know the two owners of the Cleveland Mixer Company, and they they understood that we represented the other side, but we got to know them, and we realized that actually there was a pretty good match here, and so we were able to architect the acquisition of Cleveland Mixer by our client, which is called Greer Co., and uh, here's just a little ending to the story. On the evening that we had the closing, we all went out to a restaurant afterwards, as you sometimes do. And we had all the paperwork like this sitting around on the table. So, of course, it has the rings from the drink glasses on it. And uh, the two guys who owned the firm were uh, Bud Courier and Bud Cameron. And that night, Bud Courier went home and died. So we did the transaction really, you know, literally just in time for Bud and his family to be able to see the business go in the hands of a really great uh, potential uh, partner. And also, obviously, got them a lot of chips off the table. So it was uh, a lot of learning Alan going on uh, at the time and uh, luckily for me I had very very patient clients who you know were 30 to 40 years older than I was and but were willing to put up with a young man in a hurry.
1: You know it's it, it's interesting to feel that you work in uh, entrepreneur owner manager yep. you know a lot of these guys are ADHD uh, yep. super controlling uh so I I'd like to uh to maybe talk about a, approach how because a lot of these people you know they they're they're their own entity
0: how do you work with these guys So I understand a little bit about psychology um I went back to school at age 50 and got an advanced degree in positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania which is the home of positive psychology in the world. And I say, I give that to you as context because I believe that the entrepreneur owner managers that I deal with and who are the most effective ones I see build on strength. They're not trying to fix weakness. As you pointed out, frequently, they're ADD dyslexic misfits who all their lives have felt like the dumb kids in the room when they were in the classroom and they didn't get along with their employers. They may not have had a lot of formal education, but boy, oh boy, when they're in a domain, they often uh, are outstanding, world-class in that domain. And the domain may not only be this wide, but they're delivering value to their customers in that domain. So the way that I deal with them, Alan, is that I really appreciate how hard it is to be them. That if you are an independent critical thinker, in today's mass popular culture, man, you are alone. And you might feel very isolated. In fact, you might even feel lonely. You might feel like the world does not understand you. And so for our clients, uh, they typically do feel that way and they're struggling with the thought of, how am I going to get my business to succeed beyond me? And so my um, approach with them is one of empathy, understanding, Trying to figure out what is the stone in their shoe. A lot of times with entrepreneurs, you know, you can, there's a lot of stories out there in the culture about some of the bad behavior that entrepreneurs have. They can be controlling, they could be wild people, they could be whatever. I view a lot of that as not what's the bad behavior, but rather what's the stone in their shoe? What's the pain that's causing them to act that way and to try to be very understanding of that. And I find that um, some number of entrepreneurs really resonate with that and they appreciate that and they, they bond with us very quickly. Hey, look, some others don't want that. Some others just don't want that kind of a intimate relationship. And so at least they know that's what we offer and then they're not a good fit for us. So our whole approach really is based not on the company as much as it is based on the people and the individual, if that's helpful. So Pete, you're Your degree is
1: in advanced positive psychology is very, very unique. Yes. What led you down the path for that degree?
0: So I began to see early in my career, I was just a kid, but I observed that these clients of mine, most of whom were 20 to 40 years older than me, would make decisions about their businesses, and sometimes they would make decisions that were not rational. Meaning, from an economics point of view, when we say something is not rational, it's not in their objective uh, self-interest. And I would see them do that, make those decisions which were not in their self-interest, and I would think to myself, oh, it's just an anomaly, It's it's an accident, it was a mistake. And then over time, years, I began to see that many entrepreneurs made those decision errors that were not in their best interest. And I began to see that many of them made them very systematically and even to the point where I could actually predict that they were going to make a decision error. And at the time I met Marty Seligman, who Martin Seligman is probably today the most published living psychologist. He is at Penn and he was developing a field called positive psychology very quickly if you or your son is interested, whereas traditional psychology would be the presentation of an illness, i.e., I have a psychosis, I have a neurosis, I have, I'm i depressed, or whatever. Whenever I go to a psychologist to, quote, fix it, Marty said to me, you know, Pete, I was a clinical psychologist for 25 years. And Marty said, I think I was a pretty good one. And I met a lot of people who were at like a negative 8 or a negative 10 in their lives. And I worked really hard with them and I was really good at what I do, and I got a lot of them to a minus two. I think I might've gotten someone to a neutral. And I explained to Marty, I have no interest in that. My interest is in getting somebody from a plus five to a plus 50. And he said, me too. That turns out to be what positive psychology is all about, which is building on your strengths. It doesn't say if you have a broken arm, don't fix it. Of course you have to fix it. But it says that there are a whole bunch of other characteristics which if you identify them, and Dan Sullivan would call this in your unique ability, if you can identify those things and if you can focus on those things, that you'll actually build on your strengths and you will actually be able to have an outcome where you're flourishing and thriving. So my interest was all about how do entrepreneur owner managers flourish and thrive? And I'll just give you a teensy bit of a complication, which is you pointed it out. Many times these people have spent their lives in a domain, building an organization, they love the people, they love what they do, they know they want to put the hands, the business in the hands of someone next, but after they do it, there might be a sense of loss, maybe sometimes almost a sense of mourning uh, of what is the next thing. So a lot of my work in the positive psychology domain has been to ask the question, are you driven by the past Or are you called to the future? Because if you're called to the future, if you have something out there in your next chapter that you're trying to get to, we can help you with that. Because we can help you get to the next chapter by doing a a capital gain transaction and uh, getting you freedom if that's what your desire is. So a lot of the positive psychology uh, world we brought right to Bigelow, our team loves it and candidly, our clients love it. So I'm really happy we did it.
1: You know, in the uh, in the field that you're working with, M and A advisory, uh, are they one-time engagements or are they recurring? Do you continue to work with the companies after you've helped them succeed at uh,
0: acquisition
1: or you know major transactions?
0: So usually, um, that's a great question, Alan. I think I understand what you're getting at. So for Bigelow. Um, we deal exclusively with entrepreneur owner managers and we deal exclusively with helping them to build enterprise value and capture it in a capital gain. And so an example might be of a company we met four or five years ago, when we met them, the business might've been worth uh, 20 or $22 million. They had a minority ESOP, an employee stock option plan, minority, owned 30% of the business and two brothers owned the business. The two brothers knew that they wanted to have a capital gain someday, but they also knew that the business wasn't ready for it, nor were they quite ready for it. So we began a conversation over a period of years that said basically to them, you know, do you want to understand what the drivers of value are in your business? Because we can identify them together. And this is not just window dressing. These are really the drivers of enterprise value in your business, and you can actually optimize those things if you want to. And those two brothers, God bless them, are um incredible uh, uh operators and they uh for the last three or four years have done incredible execution we had an outside market study done with that, together with them they went to, and got a new coo from the industry they separated some people who they had to let go they have a business plan which focuses on certain market segments and we just i'm happy to tell you we just did a transaction for them which ultimately sold the business for 120 million dollars not 20 million dollars And I believe it's accurate to say that out of the ESOP, 15 of the employees in the ESOP became millionaires. So for us, it's not as much about um, working with them through uh, multiple transactions as it is in taking our time to be infinitely patient to work with them on this single transaction. And you are correct. Most entrepreneurs go into the private transaction market for one time in their life, for the largest single financial transaction of their life, and the one that affects their legacy and their longevity more than anyone. So like we take that really seriously, we feel that weight on our shoulders, and we really try to make sure that we're um, performing, you know to their expectation. How do you decide who you want
1: to work with?
0: It's the most important question in our business for a lot of reasons, one of which is obviously all of our intellectual satisfaction comes from who we work with. But also in our business, there's a little truth serum, Alan. And the truth serum is that we only get paid when something great happens for our clients. So right now we have some conversations going on. It's funny you mentioned this. I just mentioned this to a client yesterday. I said to her, I know that you are evaluating us, but it's important that you understand we're evaluating you too, because you see, if we work together, we only get compensated when something great happens. So we really need to make sure that we love you, that we're gonna get through the hard parts together, that we're gonna have this mutually intimate, mutually profitable relationship, and that's what you want. Uh, And so um, they have to be private business owners, The business has to be of a certain size so for example we bring more value to businesses that have an enterprise value of over 50 million they have to be in an industry that we can be helpful to so just to be ridiculous there are some industries that don't have investors that will come into them and so we need to make sure it's not one of those industries and i meant what i said we need to make sure we really like these people actually i would say to my team no we need to make sure we love them because it is going to be hard to do this And there's a lot of tension and rubbing along the way. and We need to make sure we're, you know, aligned. And so uh, happily for us, we have um, clients who are, for the most part, deliriously happy. I expect with the the aging of America, the
1: baby boomers, and the transition to the next generations, there's an abundance of
0: uh, opportunities out there. They really are, um, Alan. And in fact, thank you for saying that because it reminds me of a comment made yesterday by an entrepreneur who he said, How has the increase in the interest rates affected the, the environment for buyers? Because boy, I don't think I want to go to market now. The interest rates have gone up the most in history and it must have really killed the enterprise values. And I said to him, you know, that's not the way the private market works. The private market is made up of strategic investors and private equity firms who use on average about 50% of the purchase price ends up as debt. But it's not debt from a bank like you or I would go and borrow from. It's debt from a non bank bank. And that's why interest rates going up or down doesn't affect the market very much. What you said is one of the biggest drivers in the market is, hey, there's a whole group of baby boomers. Someone told me 10,000 of them per day are hitting retirement age, and many of them are business owners. And one other big thing, there is a an abundance. No, there's a super abundance of capital out there that's here for the long term, that our retirement plans and our endowments have found the private market, and it is an excellent market for those firms to invest in. And so they found that firm, and that abundance of uh, abundance of capital is not going away.
1: How do entrepreneurs capture the value of their business? So we've and used... let's take the example of the, the the entrepreneur who you took from twenty to hundred million dollars uh, on the uh, the transaction. What was what what's the secret sauce to put the value? To where it really needs to be.
0: Yes, thank you for asking that. So, um, because you're entirely correct that for all firms, including the one that we talked about, so that firm is in the synthetic lubricant business. So they make oil and grease, but not from oil and grease base, it's a chemical business. And um, therefore, and they have superior financial performance. Therefore, there will be both uh, strategic investor interest. We call a strategic investor somebody that's got a synergistic reason for being in the business, as well as financial investor interest. And the thing is, Alan, that we're not looking for average investors, that our clients have these businesses they've committed their lives to, their careers to. They've built the culture. They hired all the people. Who the next owner of the business is, really matters to them so we're trying to find the best fit owner in the world from all those categories so we go out and talk when we think about thousands of investors we talk to possibly hundreds and we basically screen the investors so that we only expose our clients business to maybe a dozen or two dozen we've always used a technology enabled methodology to do that we don't write a prospectus we don't send out a book we go at it a completely different way We're really we're proactively interviewing investors asking them show me why you deserve the opportunity to be an investor in this beautiful synthetic lubricant company so we've completely turned the tables on the investors to have them sell us or our clients on why they're the best fit and we work really hard at doing that and when you do that alan and you find the best fit investor you very frequently find what would be called a spike bidder where if you could draw a normal distribution, of course, if there's 25 offers, many of them will be right near the mean, right around the mean. But if you've got the right conversations going on, there'll be some down in the right hand tail who for for them, this business is worth a lot more. Those are the ones that we're interested in. And those are the ones we go after. You know the one thing about
1: the entrepreneur owner manager is that they, uh, they they created something it's their their life legacy, uh, and then we come down to a sale. I imagine that that is probably a big issue of uh, once this thing goes through it's it's not just about the money, but you know how is it going to leave a positive legacy in my
0: life? How how do you handle that? I would say that is the overarching goal for all of our clients because, you see, they didn't do a Silicon Valley startup to sell out. It wasn't even in their mind that they were trying to build enterprise value until the business usually was quite mature. And so what really is mattering to them is the legacy that they're leaving and how their employees are treated and the culture and will there be an investor who respects the culture, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, we lead with that with investors, we lead with that culture and, you know, investors are not shy. They're really smart. So if we're leading with culture and they don't agree with the culture, they'll tell us, you know what, that's not something that, that, that resonates with us. Hey, great. No problem. There's plenty of other investors. And so really the tables have turned Alan, whereas when I began my career. It was really the people with capital who had the power in the relationship today it's the private owner manager who has the power and the capital providers are really a commodity where they can provide capital to anyone at any time so uh, we're working really hard to find those investors who are really going to appreciate the culture and the legacy of our clients firm and you know lo and behold when you do find that they're the ones who pay the highest price
1: Well said. Well, Pete, it's been wonderful having you with us today on the show. Uh, The final question here if a person wants to reach out to you and, uh, you know, learn more about Bigelow, how would they go ahead and do that?
0: Thank you for that question. I have two ways. Number one is we have a a book which continues to be an Amazon bestseller. It's called, business bestseller, excuse me. It's called Enterprise Value. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Audible. It's read by me. And it's filled with real stories of our clients who've gone through what maybe these people are thinking about going through. And otherwise, please contact me directly. If you go to bigelowllc.com, my email address and my private um, cell phone number are both on there and immediately accessible by anyone who would like to reach me. All right. Thank, thank you, Pete. Alan, I
1: appreciate you.